Welcome to Meetings with Remarkable Educators. This podcast is brought to you in part by you, our friends and supporters at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators. Each podcast is a dialogue between me, Ba Lovemore, and an educator who sees the greatness in their students and touches the whole of their being. These educators defy generalizations, so here's a little bit about what they've done and how I know them. Is a society based on partnership and not domination possible? What would such a society look like? Are there examples of this in history, in the present day? Can humans regain the partnership way and be liberated from the violence and oppression of the dominator way? Who can ask these questions with the integrity of meticulous research and the dignity that comes from overcoming heinous domination herself? Rianne Eisler. Her book, The Chalice and the Blade, has sold over 500,000 copies is translated into 26 languages, and lays an unimpeachable foundation for understanding the partnership-dominator continuum. And that was just the beginning of her prodigious contributions in jurisprudence, literature, teaching, and speaking to bring cultural change to partnership, to respect, caring, and happiness as central to our world. So when Paul Friedman wrote that she had agreed to be a guest on Meetings with Remarkable Educators, I was thrilled. Rianne has influenced so many educators. I knew that partnership in education is a cornerstone in her work and welcomed the opportunity to deepen my understanding. I felt that she was an ally in that natural learning relationships, the holistic appreciation of child development that Josette and I articulate, specifies one way to actualize partnership in education and in families. There was one hitch. This was the first podcast in which I didn't have a previous personal connection with the guest. I wondered if such a person of such renown and who had been interviewed by many people from many nations would be open to dialogue and inquiry or simply offer previously prepared statements. Friends, listen and find out, but I think you can probably guess the answer. Rianne Eisler, J.D., is president of the Center for Partnership Studies and internationally known as a systems scientist, attorney working for the human rights of women and children, and author of groundbreaking books such as The Chalice and the Blade, Tomorrow's Children, and The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. Dr. Eisler has received many honors, including honorary PhDs and Peace and Human Rights Awards. She lectures worldwide, with venues including the United States General Assembly and universities. Well, um, I'm just so thankful that you're taking the time out of your busy life. I know how busy you are, and I'm just so appreciative of us being able to do this together. So thank you so very much for being with us. Well, it's, I'm just delighted to be with you, and um, I'm raring to go. All right. Well, my, the, I just wonder... Is there a moment uh, in your life where all of a sudden sort of the light went on and 
the partnership way appeared to you as a way to go ahead and speak directly to the well-being in the world? Was it gradual? Was there a, just a moment of, oh, I see it, and now I, go ha- I have to go and fill it out? Uh, you know, that's a really good question. Uh, I started to do the research on this way back before the book that introduced the partnership and domination models came out. Uh, and I worked on it for about 10 years. Uh, So uh, that was the first phase of the research. So I can't really say that it was just one moment. I think it was both. It was a gradual, obviously, over 10 years process. uh, But there were a lot of aha moments uh, for me. And the beginning to see the configuration, the patterns that had really been obscured uh, if you look at uh, human societies uh, and human cultural evolution through the lenses of conventional categories, uh, that was very exciting. Of course, I've just finished reading Tomorrow's Children, and in a previous conversation you told me that was one of your books that didn't have as much uh, popularity, perhaps, certainly, as The Chalice and the Blade. And so taking all of that understanding and bringing it to children and education and the specific curricula you describe in there and so on, um, how did that transition happen? I think that there are uh, certain key uh, institutions in society and, of course, education uh, all the way from the informal education in families, uh, as well as media, religion, uh, etc., um, is one of these institutions. And schools, uh, more formal education, play a very important part, both in cultural systems maintenance and in systems change. So that awareness led me Uh, to write that book, to write Tomorrow's Children. And I'm still astonished that it hasn't really been taken up more by progressive educators uh, because what it provides is such an integrated approach of process, structure, and content. Uh, But I think one of the main reasons is that progressive education has focused primarily on process, how we teach and learn, uh, and paid far less attention, paid some attention to the structure of the educational institution, but far less attention to content. And yet, the content, the narratives, uh, that is so key to what kind of worldview our people grow up with. Well, I, I, you know, as you may recall, I've been, I am in the field of holistic and progressive education for many, many years, and um, I, I've often found that there's kind, kind of a resistance to diving more deeply into. I don't want to say philosophy, but the understand the underlying epistemology, the underlying way of knowing 
that's involved in learning. And I, when the partnership way from the first moment I read it, deeply called forth um, understandings uh, of interconnectedness and wholeness that aren't just words to throw around, but reflect a very profound sort of inner and personal as well as social commitment in order for the outcome of something like the partnership way to take hold. Does that ring any bells with you? Oh, absolutely. And uh, one of the reasons that Tomorrow's Children focuses, I mean, yes, it talks about process, and yes, it talks about structure, but it does focus a great deal on content. And uh, it is precisely for that reason, because we humans live by stories, by narratives. And if our progressive education uh, fails to pay attention to how uh, the narratives continue to reinforce, despite uh, all of the talk about equality and care and what have you, uh, really continue to reinforce an old, what I call domination worldview, I don't think we're going to move forward. And it's uh, really doing a disservice to young people not to offer them at least the choice of new narratives. Well, even in the self-directed education community and the homeschooling community, as well as progressive and holistic schools, the the, the right the, I completely agree with you, Rian. Absolutely, that process becomes the most important part of the event. What what do you feel is inhibits them from embracing the content? I think habit is part of it. Um, I, I think that also um, people are very used to thinking uh, in what I call old paradigm ways. Uh, they think in terms of right versus left, religious versus secular, Eastern versus Western, uh, Northern versus Southern, and fail to understand something that really jumps at you, uh, which is not only uh, are there regressive and violent societies in all these categories, so that none of them offer us the social blueprint, right? Right, exactly. That we need, but that, uh, interestingly, uh, they they pay scant, if any, attention to the cultural construction of our primary relations, which are childhood relations, parent-child and and with other caregivers, as well as gender relations. And there is this real uh, tendency uh, among progressives, I'm afraid, uh, to still uh, see uh, these issues as, quote, just women's issues and just children's issues. Yeah, special interest groups. It's just more and more divisiveness, isn't it? And isn't that <coughs> weird? Because we're talking about <coughs> the vast majority of humanity. I mean, when you consider that women are half of the species, I mean, female, <laughs> and that yes. if you add children to it, I mean, this is the vast majority of humanity. And yet we've been so, I mean, I've really studied this intensely. And this is brought out to some extent 
in tomorrow's children, but tomorrow's children focuses less on critique than on offering other alternatives, which I think is so important. We can critique from here to eternity, but unless there is, I mean, a a sense of just what is it? What are the foundations that we're trying to lay here for that uh, more equitable, more sustainable, uh, more caring future, or even a future at all, given the 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 problem of uh, really a high technology guided by an ethos of domination. Uh, it, it, it's fascinating, isn't it? It really is, and. Uh, the way I, I've come to look at it is this well-being, this greatness, this wholeness, this this partnership. It's it's in us. It's natural, and it's wanting to come forward. And it keeps bumping up against obviously these dominant habits and the whole dominator paradigm. Absolutely. And you, you just mentioned the um, the paradigm shift, and that's become a very popular term right now. And as with many popular terms, it's not really uh, well used as it should be. So I wonder, first of all, can you um, talk about? I know the partner, the partnership way is a is the uh, where we're moving towards, or where we kind of have to move towards for our own uh, survival and and happiness. But how does that shift happen? How do we do that? Is it just going to be reorganizing the narrative? Is there something that we have to do to help break these habits, these sleepwalking modes that so many people walk around in, that they neglect the obvious, uh, like as you were just speaking of? Well, look, um, I think, first of all, we have to recognize that uh, progressives, like regressives, have uh, internalized uh, a lot of the basic assumptions of domination systems, which is this, first of all, uh, the equation of of, uh, difference with either superiority or inferiority, with either dominating or being dominated, with either being served or serving, starting really with the fundamental difference in form uh, in among humans between female and male. And then that gets generalized, doesn't it, to a different race. I mean, it isn't just, uh, you know, racism in the United States. It's Shia versus Sunni and Sunni versus Shia. I mean, all rigid domination cultures and subcultures have this in-group versus out-group thinking. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is uh, today's reexamination of gender of the cultural construction of both masculinity and femininity and how the two should relate is because it is fundamental. So that is one of the cornerstones. Um, I, I've identified in my research really four cornerstones. Uh, for either domination systems or partnership systems. And by the way, it's always a continuum. No society is a pure partnership or domination system, okay? But uh, one cornerstone we've already uh, touched on uh, is childhood. I mean, what we today know from neuroscience, and we've known for a long time from psychology, uh, is how fundamentally our early childhood observations and experiences 
uh, shape us. They shape nothing less than how our brain develops, right? Before our critical faculties are in place. And, you know, I looked at your book on education, and it's a lovely book. And I congratulate well, thank you, you on it. And, and it really deals very much with uh, what, what in, in today we would call authoritative, res- mutually respectful uh, 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 childhood relations, because yes. we haven't really, as you as you note, I mean, uh, what passes for respect in those relations in a domination system is fear. <laughs> yes. The Josette and I have spent so much time looking at that essential teacher or educator or parent-child relationship. I know. Because we feel very much right there. If that's not built on trust and mutual respect, then the subsequent learning is not going to happen or is going to happen in a corrupted way. But you see, for domination systems, and you see it in rigid domination systems, uh, you have to have to socialize children to conflate a caring with coercion. Isn't that just hearing you say it? I mean, it's so accurate, but it just—it's just so sad. It's just—it's—it's it's really. I walk around with an open heart and and a, and a kind of bleeding heart around that all the time. Because that right there, the power of turning turning that to trust, it just would change so much. Well, and the good news uh, is that, of course, books like yours, books like mine, uh, other uh, books by both uh, pediatricians, by neuroscientists, by psychologists, uh, are pointing out, you know, this enormous uh, importance of a real cultural transformation in those primary relations. And that's where process is really also important. But again, I want to return to the issue of narratives. I mean, think for a moment um, of, of, of what kind of models for human relations children internalize from our traditional fairy tales, for example. I mean, pretty bizarre, you know, royalty uh, over common people, (laughs) men, you know, women are helpless, men have to rescue them, uh, men have to fight uh, to mate. I mean, the whole thing is bizarre, but it isn't really bizarre at all when you consider that it came out of more rigid domination times and it's part of the socialization. But let me continue with the four cornerstones, if I may. Please do. Thank you. Please do. Because we've talked about three of them already. We've talked about childhood. We've talked about gender. We've talked about narratives. And then there's economics. And if you really build uh, a completely, we have an opportunity now because the old econ, I mean, both capitalism and socialism came out of very early industrial times, you know. Uh, well, I mean, it's really interesting. 18th, 19th century, we're in the 21st century um, post industrial age, right? So they're antiquated, but that's not the main problem. They carry enormous uh, luggage. From, domin- from more rigid domination times. And part of that is the devaluation of care work, of caring for nature, caring uh, for people starting in early childhood is simply not part of either socialism nor 
capitalism. I mean, for both uh, Smith and Marx, uh, that, you know, caring for people in early childhood, that's just women's work. That's just reproductive and not the productive work they were interested in. So I wrote a book, as you probably know, uh, on that very critical institution, uh, economics, and it's called The Real Wealth of Nations. And the subtitle is somewhat, uh, people do a double take because it's creating a caring economics. And I'm always amused that people find that so difficult um, because isn't that a comment on how we've been socialized to accept that economic systems should be driven by uncaring values, right? Yes, absolutely. So as you can see, my work really goes to fundamentals. It's teaching story time. Briefly, teaching stories invite us to see the world with a new perspective, often featuring a wise person, a wise fool, or a trickster animal. They can be humorous and often have many shades of meaning shining throughout the story. I have told teaching stories for the past 40 years, and I love them, and I have to tell you, each time I tell one, I learn much more myself. This teaching story is called How little can we live on? The wise fool decided to do an experiment. He wanted to see how little amount of food his donkey could live on. And so, accordingly, each day he decreased the amount of food given to the donkey by a bit. Of course, over time the donkey became thinner and thinner, but it still lived and it still did its functions. Then one day, The wise fool went in, and the donkey was lying on its side, quite dead. Drats, said the wise fool. I almost had it able to live on nothing at all. Let's have some fun interpreting this teaching story. Become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash remarkableeducators, and you have access to our detailed comments on how this story applies to education and parenting. Of course, that's just our perspective. The fun comes with community dialogue as the many shades of the teaching story come alive. See you there. I was just going to make the point that while my books, uh, you know, Tomorrow's Children looks at education, uh, to, uh, you know, the real wealth of nations focuses on economics, uh, sacred pleasure focuses on sexuality and spirituality. But the point of it is that it's really always from the looking through the lens of the partnership domination continuum. And and that is so, I mean, you ask me about aha moments. Using that lens is transformative. Not only was it to me, but I get uh, so much mail from people Uh, saying it really transformed their lives. And so we've got to get these models out there. So, so that actually uh, speaks to, to what's, what's on my mind at this moment, which is back to the, uh, I guess, for lack of a better term, the inner quality of the person. And so the understanding of the dominator and partnership lens 
is is a transformative aspect um, uh, from from your experience because that's been a real question for me is what's going on inside people we touched upon that briefly when we talked about habit a little bit earlier uh, in this conversation but how do we really break those habits and um, and so one of the ways that you're saying right now is by appealing to or letting when people understand the or use this lens that then they are more able to let go of former habits i i definitely would say yes to that uh, and it's very interesting uh, we you know uh, linguistic psychologists point out that language and especially uh, the social categories that a culture makes available channel our thinking. And if you don't have, I mean, we, for example, for gender relations, we have patriarchy and we have matriarchy. But if you really look at whether it's ruled by fathers or ruled by mothers, conceptually, semantically, it's just two sides of the domination coin, isn't it? Nothing, no real alternative. And that's because in the rigid domination mindset, there really are only two alternatives. You either dominate or you're dominated. There is no partnership alternative. And so we need to change our language, not only our narratives, in order for us to uh, be able to make these fundamental changes because otherwise we keep getting pulled back into the old don't we yes so uh, you you let's go let's go then more deeply into what is meant exactly by partnership you you've talked about you know the confusions that arise in the dominator model and you've given us you know for the four important cornerstones that we have to work in and in, in your book, you talk about partnership and you use the, you talk about it as a tapestry. And I'm wondering if you could give us just a, a richer and deeper understanding of partnership. Well, you know, when I chose, when I, when I began to see these configurations, these patterns in societies across history and cross-culturally, uh, there were no names for them, right? Because... We're so used to these old categories that I just mentioned, right-left, religious, secular, east-west, north-south, you name it. And so at that time, the term partnership seemed like an apt way of calling it because it had not yet begun to be used the way it's being used now for sort of joint ventures, right? (laughs) We're going to work together. That's what immediately comes to mind, yes. People can work together to do terrible things. I mean, (laughs) sure, terrorists work together, monopolies work together, invading armies work together. I mean, you know, and I chose it at that time. uh, I used the model of a business partnership where at least in theory, the relations are supposed to be uh, mutual respect, mutual accountability, mutual benefit, right? Yes, Domination is very easy. I mean, that that everybody can understand, but there is confusion around partnership. And I, I, I sometimes wish I had chosen another term, but it's already out there 
and it does have a good connotation of at, uh, even though it it can be used to just working together, which is hardly what how I use it. I use it as a way of describing social configurations, and the four cornerstones I just mentioned to you are really a key to those configurations. I mean, if you start with the kind of childhood and family uh, relations and how those are directly interconnected in a mutually reinforcing way with the kinds of relations that are normative uh, in a society, in a domination system, they're top-down authoritarian relations, right? Whereas, uh, and, and again, we need new words because in the partnership model, there are hierarchies, but they're not what, I, what I've, I've had to coin words again. Uh, in domination systems, you have hierarchies of domination. We, we're all familiar with those, you know, accountability, respect, benefit, they just flow from the bottom up, right? In a yes. hierarchy of actualization, and we need hierarchies, we need parents, we need teachers, we need managers, we need leaders, right? But it, a hierarchy of actualization, uh, benefit, accountability, respect flow both ways. And what's so wonderful in a way is that even though the language isn't being used, the language of, uh, of having hierarchies or managements that empowering rather than disempowering really captures some of that, doesn't it? So we're, we're trying to move in that direction, but we haven't had this, this frame. And I think without the frame, without that new paradigm, that new systemic approach, uh, we're all over the map, okay? Versus the people pushing us back who understand about childhood, it has to be authoritarian, who understand that gender, you know, which is the second real cornerstone of, of these two systems, that that's a model, as I said, you know, for difference. It's either you're on top or you're on bottom. And also it brings with it something very, very uh, pathological, which is the these rigid gender stereotypes where masculinity is defined as not being like a woman, and yet women are the only ones who are supposed to uh, embody and uh, and use the soft, quote unquote, you know, caring, uh, caregiving, nonviolence. Men aren't, so no wonder we've got a mess, right? So, so, um, and then partnership here. If, I'm going to use some words, and please let me know if I do this well. Partnership here means. Um, mutually beneficial in such a way as to bring forth well-being in each participant in the event? Yes. Uh, and at the same time, it means uh, reconstructing these four cornerstones in a way that will support those kinds of relations. Because mm -hmm. you see, we can talk about having these kinds of relations, but unless we have an understanding, which is what my research and now the research of others uh, and what neuroscience now shows, unless we have an understanding of the importance of how childhood relations are, are constructed, of how gender roles and relations are constructed, of how economics is constructed, and about the narratives, we don't have 
the structure that will support these kinds of relations. I see. So um, I know in, in our work, we have tried to bring forward um, an understanding, for example, of how children see the world, how they organize the world, how they know their world, and then to suggest um, opportunities that are available to parents where at least what they're bringing forward can uh, engage the child within, their, within the context uh, in which they're living. In other words, in the way they know the world, so that the communication is not top down, but is is understood well from both part parties. Is that an example of a partnership approach? That is a very important part of the partnership approach, because what you're focusing on uh, are how relations, starting with childhood relations, are structured. I would like to add to that that also important is changing uh, the whole notion of gender construction because not only in terms of the opportunities that each child has as a girl or boy, but also because of the tremendous impact this has on the governing values of the society. I'm totally involved with that, Rianne. I have all daughters and granddaughters, so we are all over that one. And it has to be structural. It, 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 it is wonderful that there are families that are moving in that direction, and that's an important part. But uh, as long as, uh, I mean, let's talk politics for a moment. Uh, it, was, it was a very interesting study that uh, people who voted for Donald Trump as president, uh, they, they had two things in common. Uh, one, a mistrust of these sort of strong uppity women, quote unquote, right? <laughs> oh my gosh. And secondly, uh, it wasn't economics, it was status and domination. Yes, I can. I un I see that directly. That's not a surprise what you're saying. So what I'm saying is that uh, if you use the lens of the partnership domination uh, social scale, you begin to see that a lot of stuff that seems random and disconnected, like these two findings I just mentioned, they fit because this model pays particular attention to gender, pays particular attention to of what kind of relations a system encourages. But what I'm trying to communicate is that uh, from my perspective, and this takes us right back to tomorrow's children, um, while process is very, very important, we have to pay much more attention to structure and to uh, content. Content, of course, is narratives and structure is uh, the institution now, uh, I mean, the hierarchies of domination or hierarchies of actualization, okay? So it's all interconnected and mutually supporting. The, uh, you, the amount of research and curriculum suggestions and ways to revisit everything from cultural evolution to physical evolution uh, is is just extraordinary in your book. I, I really wish all of our re all of our listeners would just spend some time with any of the chapters because they're all. I, I just can't believe how many suggestions you have. It just must pour out of you. Well, I 
feel that it's very important to be specific. Um, what we're talking about is sort of the larger picture. But, uh, for example, uh, if we're talking about multicultural content and gender-balanced content and narrative, well, the example uh, that I, uh, one of the examples of that uh, was to uh, use uh, in art classes, uh, not only talk about so-called high art, but to talk about crafts, you know, crafts have been relegated largely to, to women, haven't they? Pottery and tapestry. Isn't that interesting how it's been devalued? And yet those are the arts that make, that are part of our, our, our life. They're not just hanging in a museum, right? Right. Much more common in our lives, for sure. And they're much more important. So I gave the example of African women uh, crafts uh, 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 artists. Uh, who, uh, that can be used, you see. I mean, to so that yeah, children I, don't grow up you, with this notion of, well, the only important art is a Picasso or whatever. No. We just came back from Santa Fe and visited with some um, indigenous uh, people there and this beautiful, beautiful yarn weaving of uh, called the Rainbow Maiden. We just fell in love with it and it has pride of place in our home right now it's so beautiful isn't that wonderful oh my gosh we look at that and we just can't believe in the colors just keep kind of folding into each other it's 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 kinetic even though it's state stationary on the wall and yet uh, it has not been considered quote high art until recently it's beginning to shift a little bit and of course in tomorrow's children uh I would like children to be exposed to thinking of creativity, also in terms of everyday creativity, which is really the most important creativity. You've developed and presented us all with such a rich, detailed, comprehensive, and stimulating view. I wonder if you could tell us just a little bit about your background and how you grew into that, how you came to it. Oh, I'd be happy to. Um, well, look, I, as you can tell, I have a great deal of passion for all of this. <laughs> and that passion is rooted in my own early childhood as a, a refugee child from the Holocaust with my parents. And that uh, led me really to questions about whether all this injustice and violence uh, has to be. I mean, the, when we humans are capable of so much kindness, so much caring, so much consciousness, so much creativity, why uh, has there been so much cruelty and insensitivity and destructiveness? And those were the questions that eventually <laughs> led to my research. Um, there were many uh, other formative experiences. Um, uh, certainly, it was really very interesting when in the um, 19, late 1960s, I woke up along with thousands of other women to realize uh, that, uh, you know, I had been part, I mean, being born Jewish had almost cost me my life. So yes, you know, that, that other, right? Um, uh, that was demonized by narratives. I mean, think of the importance of narratives. But uh, I also became aware that I was part of the uh, other, that is, uh, instead of being part of, quote, mankind, I was a woman. 
Really? <laughs> That's amazing. It's Yeah, and I, I had not been aware of that. And, and then I thought of all of my education, you know, higher education, how little, how little there had been about, by, about, uh, really, and for people like me, like women. If you really think of the uh, university curriculum, uh, and even today, the new women's studies, men's studies, gender studies, they're still in the ghetto, aren't they? Yes, they are. And it's very disappointing. It's almost as if, as if they're just lagging behind. It's terrible. In my work, they don't. You see, I mean, which again is so fascinating. I mean, the understanding that this is, uh, it's like fish swimming in water. You know, we had all been used to devalue uh, the female half of humanity and anything associated with it. Uh, So, uh, I mean, I still remember when people used to say when a child was born, if it was a girl, hope next time it's a boy. And that was in the West, right? In the so-called yes. you know, enlightened West. Well, I mean, even today, I don't know how much you know, but at least the stories are coming out now of millions of little girls who are simply fed less, given less health care in this uh, so-called developing world. I mean, it's... <laughs> there was, there was a, a, a study done... Um, that I'm familiar with, uh, and actually uh, was colleagues with some of the people, in which they went into this pretty large school district and they asked all the administrators, teachers, and students, who is the least gender biased in the whole in the whole district, and they came up with six teachers, and everyone agreed these six teachers don't have gender bias. So that they asked, well, can we put a video camera in your room? sort of up in the corner for a few months, let it just run, and then you can look at the tape and you can decide, meaning the teachers can decide whether or not there's gender bias. And the teachers, good-hearted people, were appalled because all of the, uh, you know, favoritism towards the boys, helping them work out their problems, calling the girls to be neat, and just on and on, all the stereotypical behaviors were reinforced. And these were the people who everyone had agreed would be the least gender biased. Well, I'm not surprised. And what I, uh, I've done a lot of work on uh, human rights. Uh, in fact, I wrote the first uh, article ever published in the Human Rights Quarterly on what later became known as women's rights, as human rights. And I've also written a great deal uh, about children's human rights. Uh, They're simply not, I mean, it's taken a long time for even international human rights uh, organizations to start to include these rights. But, you know, I have to say, and this is, again, I mean, and this is not politically correct, and I don't care, when there is this sort of sense that uh, everything, you know, is is the fault of the West. Well, no. I mean, if you no. look at some yes. of the traditions of 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 horrible uh, domination, and yes, a, a domination of male over female and male preference. I mean, babies 
as I said, you know, uh, in, in places like uh, Pakistan and, and Bangladesh and India, uh, little girls are very often fed less and given less health care. And, you know, it's not only what happens to these children, because the survivors, uh, because they're malnourished, will give a birth to both boys and girls uh, that have, have been cheated, really, out of their full capacity, because we know that malnourished women do not uh, have the capacity, right, to give birth to children that have their full potential. I mean, systemically, th this is what I'm interested in. You see, yes, uh, um, when I woke up to the female other, so to speak, and to feminism, that was big. But then I started to, to see the connections between uh, gender bias and so many of our world's problems, like the male socialization, not to be like a woman, right? Well, that really, I mean, is so terrible for so many boys and men. And again, the good news is that there's beginning to be awareness of that, which is a partnership trend. Yes, absolutely. So, um, so then, so then we're in the late '60s, and this is waking up in you, and with it, obviously, a tremendous sense of social justice, and just just at, at the root of it, was there is there an awareness? Because this is true for me, and I'm just asking if it's true for you. Just an awareness that there's a fundamental uh, interconnectedness uh, within all life, and that for me, I work that just lives in me so what can i deny i can't deny anything what can i put down i can't put anything down or disrespect anything because it's like disrespecting myself well it's very interesting because as you know in the chalice and the blade i trace our cultural evolution um, going way back and it tells a very different story uh, of our cultural origins, you know, not these terrible, savage people who, you know, are driven by their genes, presumably, to uh, murder and to oppress, uh, but actually of cultures that did recognize the interconnection of, of our life. Um, I mean, one of the foraging societies, for example, studied by an anthropologist friend of mine, uh, former uh, University of California anthropologist, are the Teteri. And um, these people really see the world as animated by spirits. But interestingly, the spirits are neither female nor male. Uh, they just are. And they don't have in their language words for female and male. It's fascinating. Um, so when you're talking about interconnection, these earlier uh, cultures which, by the way, I mean, are characterized uh, in the Neolithic by a profusion of female uh, figurines, uh, which have been interpreted as being goddess figurines. Uh, they really did understand the unity of all life. And if you look at the cover art of the Chalice and the Blade, it's a fascinating figure because she has breasts, but she's phallic in shape. And she's also bird a bird beaked. So there you have a complete symbol from that earlier time of the interconnection of our life. 
that's it's just beautiful. I love listening to you. This is great. Um, I I did a podcast with a friend and a colleague uh, named Four Arrows, uh, born Don Jacobs, and he told the story of uh, you know the Iroquois Confederacy um, uh, was had a a very democratic model for how their various tribes and nations interacted. And when the uh, founding fathers were trying to figure out how to do the United States Constitution, they actually sat down with many of the Iroquois elders. And they sat in this meeting, and the first thing the Iroquois people said to them is, where are your women? There are no women here from your side. <laughs> yeah, uh, it, 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 they noticed. They noticed, yes. I mean, so they lived with that, un at least some of that understanding of of we're all in this together. And their care of place and relationship to nature, I think, reflects that as well. Well, you know, in those respects, they had more of a partnership orientation. They were warlike, uh, which is a domination orientation. But, sure. but, you know, I mean, first of all, as a Holocaust survivor, I do not believe in unilateral disarmament, obviously. Uh, because I think that's a, a chimera, that's a, that's a fantasy. As long as there are even more rigid domination societies uh, on, in our globe, and you don't have far to look, do you? I mean, uh, uh, North Korea, Iran, uh, you name it. Uh, you have to have uh, defensive armaments. The extent to which the United States has those, and I know I'm going off subject here a little, but not really, because one of the characteristics of domination systems is uh, the violence is built into the system starting in early childhood. And, you know, whether it's child beating or wife beating or pogroms or lynchings or aggressive warfare or terrorism, they're all part of domination systems. Because why? Because how else ultimately are these top-down rankings maintained? You know, be it man over man, man over woman, race over race, religion over religion, right? So this sure. is really a completely different approach to, to looking at the world and one that I think we desperately need at this time. Um, when obviously the old language the old uh, institutional structures, the old economic theories, they're not taking us where we need to go, are they? No, they're not. How old were you when you uh, had to leave the, from the Holocaust world? I was seven. You were seven, and where did you go? Cuba, it was one of the very few places in the world that you could buy your way into as a Jewish refugee. And of course, um, the Nazis confiscated, which is a, an official word for armed robbery, right? <laughs> Everything my parents had. So I grew up in the uh, industrial slums of Havana. Um, it was interesting Cuba. because we still went first class on the, on, the, on the ship to Cuba and then ended up in cockroach-infested tenements. Um, so <laughs> how, lo how long were you there? Seven years, I grew up in Cuba. It was very difficult, very difficult. Uh, but um, I learned something very interesting, which was very useful in my work. Uh, you know, the culture of Vienna, the culture of Cuba, and then later the culture of the United States, 
I very early experienced uh, this knowledge that what people consider just the way things are is not the same everywhere. And that was very important in terms of my understanding, uh, really on a very deep level, that um, we can uh, change culture. And of course, my work is designed to really accelerate, make visible and accelerate the shift from a domination-oriented culture, which we've inherited from more rigid domination times, to a more partnership-oriented culture, which is at our level of technological development, uh, really, um, you know, it's essential for, for, for survival. Um, I, I know we've been on a while, and I do have one other kind of big question I, I, I've been wanting to ask you. There is now um, a lot of people who are turning to meditation and to spirituality in the sense of not a religious uh, spirituality and not contained or constrained by those customs and rules and regulations, but um, an inner uh, relationship to uh, to. To, to spirituality, to the bigger, to the wholeness and to the mystery and to the unfolding. Do you see that? Uh, how do you see that as part of the uh, movement towards partnership? Well, in I really address that quite a bit in my book, Sacred Pleasure, um, which, as I said, uh, re-examines sexuality and spirituality from the through the lens of the partnership domination continuum. And I, I think that uh, meditation, the uh, understanding of our interconnection, uh, which we know from you know from physics too. I mean, you don't have to be go to spirituality. Uh, for it particularly, you even see it in science. These are important partnership trends. At the same time, I'm afraid that uh, there are aspects, uh, for example, in the so-called New Age movement that are very regressive. Uh, you know, the Iron John uh, story, I mean, again, a masculinity where, you, you know, Iron John has to kill in order to find a mate. I mean, that's the old domination story, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, and also, I'm afraid that it's also like very often like children playing in, in sort of the New Age playground, you know, with crystals and what have you, when there's so much, <laughs> so Indeed. much work that has to be done um, in, in terms, I mean, if you've got the leisure to do that, for goodness sakes, work for cultural transformation from domination to partnership, be it, see, we haven't had the frame. Uh, if people go to um, the website of the Center for Partnership Studies, which is centerforpartnership.org, you can find, for example, uh, the contrast of the integrated uh, regressive political agenda and the proposal for an integrated progressive political agenda. There are a lot of resources for people. And I, I of course, my books, I mean, I really would so like young people in particular um, to read them. And, and you know, my books are very accessible so that, I mean, they've been used and they are used in high schools. Yes, great. And I want you to know that, all, I want everyone listening to know that all of uh, Rianne's connections, links, books, 
and a biography as well as show notes will appear along with the podcast. So, uh, so there'll be plenty of time and plenty of uh, rather opportunity to explore partnership. And, and I can only... I can only say, you know, I, I grew up, of course, in all those, all those dominator modes, um, and I have, um, I've, I've, I've found a partner, and we have worked through so much together. I mean, you want to see if you're equal? Lead us, lead seminars together for twenty years. And see who's talking when. I mean, that's just one simple example. But we've really, really worked and deeply at um, at trying to overcome, and we feel we have. And there's just an incredible joy that's in my life every single day, just in the connection that's unfolded from really this profound respect and partnership that we share. Well, and I have seen uh, both of your books. And uh, of course, I, I, I mean, I've been very fortunate in my second marriage to really find a real partner. And uh, it's possible. I mean, that's the thing that a lot of people don't understand how much more pleasurable, as you just said. It's unbelievable. It really is. Yeah, I mean, we have to work to, it's it's more, uh, people talk about learning about relationships. I think a lot, as you point out, is unlearning. Unlearning yes. what we've been programmed uh, so that we can fit into domination systems. Well, but if we're going to change the system, which we must, uh, we can unlearn and relearn. And uh, I, I just want to thank you, but it's a pleasure to talk with you. And um I, I I just I have enjoyed it very much, and I uh, hope that our listeners um, we we really veered uh, uh, to very much the large picture. But education has to give young people the large picture from a different perspective, or we are simply reinforcing the old uh, the old ways of thinking, and we can't afford to do that. That's the, thank you and. This, as just so thank you so very, very much. I, I know how busy you are. I know how in demand you are. And just, just so thankful for this. It's been a pleasure, bro. Meetings with Remarkable Educators is brought to you in part by our friends and supporters on Patreon. If you enjoy our podcast and want access to enriching gifts for parents and educators, please visit patreon.com slash remarkable educators and consider becoming a patron. Your support means the world to us and will allow us to continue this essential project. Our sound engineer is Dimitri Young. Our webmaster is Nathan Young and our all-important social media maven is Cleo Young. All podcasts are transcribed with show notes and can be found at remarkable-educators.com. This is Ba Lovemore reminding you that holistic relationships with children leads to joy and self-knowledge with the adults in their lives. With respect for you and for children everywhere, see you next time.